I'm giving you 15 minutes. You will begin with your understanding of the Bible and you will end with your understanding of the return of Jesus. And in between, you will talk about all the major doctrines of the Christian faith in a way that will make sense for your life and the lives of others. Can you do it? Let me help you join us for this series that we're doing on Sunday night called Doctrines for Living. Well, turn tonight uh, to begin to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. We're going to wrap up uh, this section on inspiration and then move to inerrancy, infallibility, canonicity, and sufficiency, those things we want to be able to address tonight. Uh, the Bible being the inerrant, infallible, fully sufficient Word of God is foundational to all true doctrine. If the Bible is not the Word of God and we have doubts about its sufficiency uh, as the Word of God, then we have no sure foundation for what we believe. So we better be right about the Scripture. We better be sure about what the Scripture is, and that is why I've tried to spend uh, more than uh, a little time on establishing the credibility and the integrity of the inspiration of Scripture. Remember that a couple of weeks ago I told you about the uh, 1963 uh, statement, Southern Baptist Statement, Baptist Faith and Message, uh, that in the statement on Scripture, uh, so uh, where, the, where the statement says that the Bible is truth without any mixture of error, in 1963 we added this little line, the criterion by which Scripture is interpreted is Jesus Christ. Now, that line was added for liberals. It was liberals on the Baptist Faith and, Baptist Faith and Message Committee uh, that argued for the addition of that line because what they wanted was the final authority for the church not to be in the Bible but in Jesus. Now, that's slippery. It's slick. It's seductive. I can stand here tonight and say it's satanic. Because when you say that kind of thing, you have separated Jesus from Scripture. And you have said that our interpretation of what we believe is based on who Jesus is and not what the Bible says. Now, here's the question. Where do we get our understanding of who Jesus is? From the Bible. You can't separate Jesus from Scripture. And this is what liberals want to do. That is why you can have a, uh, a person running for the United States Senate who is a pastor who says, I am a pro-choice pastor. Because he gets his understanding of what truth is, not from the Bible, but from his understanding of Jesus. And his understanding of Jesus would be Jesus never in interfered with the freedom of people. Jesus wanted to enhance the freedom of people so he would never interfere with a woman's right 
to choose. That would be precisely his argument. He would adhere to what was in 1963 the understanding that was approved by Southern Baptists of the Baptist faith and message. By the way, someone who says, I'm a pro-choice pastor is one or the other, not both. Do you understand that? If you're pro-choice, you're not a pastor. If you're a pastor, you're not pro-choice. Those two, those two things cancel out each other biblically. Right? Right. So, I, I want to tell you this story. There was, there was a time in my life when the 1963 Baptist faith and message, I would have fought you over. I believe that line, Jesus Christ is the criterion of Scripture because I was full-blown liberal. I love that line because it gave me the right to determine what the Bible said based on my understanding of Jesus. So in 1986, in the midst of the battle for the Bible among Southern Baptists, I had been elected the leader of the liberal wing of Southern Baptists in the state of Georgia. I was the president of the group. I was too young to be the president and much too dumb. But it was a power play for me. It was moving up the career ladder and all of that stuff that was a part of being young and dumb. I went to a meeting where Paige Patterson, who was one of the leaders of the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention, was speaking. And after he spoke, there was a Q&A. And so I stood, and here was my question. Is the Bible more authoritative than Jesus? Or is Jesus more authoritative than the Bible? It's a slick question. It's a very slippery question. And he looked at me, and he said, Young man, I will answer you from the Bible. Peter said that an experience with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration does not begin to compare with what is written in the Bible as the Word of God. Even Jesus saw the absolute authority of the Bible and not only acknowledged it, but affirmed it. Now, at this point, I'm thinking, <clears throat> where is that in the Bible? Because as a liberal, I knew very little about the Bible. The only way you can stay a liberal is not to know much about the Bible. <laughs> I don't know who said that's right, but that's right. That's absolutely right. And I didn't know much about the Bible at that point. I knew about the Bible, but I didn't know the Bible. And then I found out where that passage is. And it is a powerful passage. Second Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 16. This is Peter trying to encourage Christians who are being persecuted, uh, trying to give them assurance in the midst of the persecution. So this is what he says in verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, even at this early stage, we're here in the middle of the first century, there were those heretics. They did not call themselves heretics. The apostolic leaders called them heretics. There were those heretics 
that attributed a lot of the life and ministry of Jesus as a myth, a legend. That there was this legend that grew up around this historical figure named Jesus. And Peter is saying, no, this is no myth. And he has the experience to prove it. At the end of verse 16, he writes, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, he and James and John. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, Peter's Jewishness, by the way, is showing here in a marvelous way because he doesn't name the name of God. He doesn't say the name of God. He uses this circumlocution, the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now you and I know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the transfiguration. And there, God speaks from heaven. Peter and James and John, who are there, hear the voice of God. And what God says is, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He is placing his mantle of anointing and approval, God is, exclusively on Jesus. The word beloved has to do with not only love by God, but his only son. So they heard the voice. They saw the sight of Moses and Elijah there with Jesus. It is a majestic moment of revelation for them of the truth about who Jesus is. You would think that this would be enough. That this would be the ultimate. Nothing could exceed this. But Peter says there is something that exceeds that moment on the mountain. Verse 19. We have the prophetic word. That's the spoken word of God in written form, which we know as the Bible. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. Focus your life on this word so this word becomes the foundation of your life as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Now, he's borrowing here images from the Old Testament, particularly from the Psalms, to speak to us about the nature and character of the Word of God. The Word of God is a lamp. Where does that come from? The Bible is a what? It's a lamp to our feet. It's a lot. He's borrowing that from Psalm 119. And Peter knows he's borrowing that. It's a lamp to our feet, and it's shining in a dark place in our hearts and in the world until the day dawns and the morning star. Who is the morning star? Jesus. Now, what he's saying here is really simple and straightforward as he's using imagery with which they would have been more familiar than we are from the Old Testament. And what he's saying to us is the Bible 
is the fully confirmed word of God that is more authoritative than the encounter with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Bible stands as the eternal truth of God shining in a dark place to point us to Jesus who rises up in our hearts as Lord under the authority of the word of God. So this is what we must know. Verse 20. He's just told us about the nature and character of the Bible. So we must know this. First of all, now in verse 20 and verse 21, if, if I were to say to you, first of all, first of all, what are you going to be waiting for? Second, <laughs> uh, there is no second here. Because first of all is not numerical. This is above all else. This is foundational. This is non-negotiable. So what is foundational, non-negotiable? Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, not a single word in Scripture, not a single sentence or paragraph in Scripture, comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, here is where I want to be careful, and if I'm not clear, I want you to help me be clear, because there are many people that take the Bible and say, I read it for myself, and I come to my own interpretation. That's not possible according to the Bible. It's not up for grabs for us to interpret it any way we want to interpret it. I read it, I interpret it for myself. So that means that however many people are in this room, if that's true, we could have that number of interpretations of any given text or every given text in the Bible, and the Bible loses its absolute authority. God's made it certain that the Bible's interpretation, that is, the right understanding of the Bible and the right understanding of every text in the Bible is given from God and by God through His Holy Spirit, and we are to read and reflect and study and examine and research and do the very best we can to hear what God is saying in the Word of God. We want to get the interpretation right. Now here's my question. Can you get the interpretation of a text wrong? Yes. And when we do and know we've gotten it wrong, we should repent. We should acknowledge that we've gotten it wrong. When we get it right, then we can know the truth of God. And then from knowing the truth of God, we can make application of the text to our lives. There is a big difference in the Bible between right interpretation and proper application. Every text has one right interpretation. How many applications does a text have? How many people in this room? If you understand the meaning of a text of Scripture, you can apply it in your life in all kinds of ways, hundreds of ways. But the interpretation, that is why Peter is clear to say here that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It comes from God, and God gives the interpretation through His Spirit to His people, 
who are reading the Scripture and studying the Scripture and researching the Scripture and spending time in the Scripture to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. Scripture, he continues in verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. We don't impose on the Bible what we want the Bible to say. We don't make the Bible say what fits in with what we believe. So how does the Bible happen? This is such an important word. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God. So these are human beings just like you and me. And they were captured by the Spirit of God. They spoke from God. God moved on their minds and hearts and wills and souls and spirits. God captured them by His Spirit as they were carried along. The word here literally means to pick somebody up and tote them. So the authors of Scripture were chosen by God and they were captured by God and they were compelled along in their writing by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you listen carefully to this text, you will see that the Bible is the outcome of the work of the Trinity. It is God the Father who captures these men that he chooses to write his word and he indwells them fully and completely by the Holy Spirit and enables them to write his word by the power of the Holy Spirit, all of it pointing to Jesus Christ. This is not only the most important book that you'll ever read, it is the most holy book you will ever read. We should, uh, we should have published on it, Handle with Care. You know what's more important to write on it at the front? Not Handle with prayer, Care, but what? Handle with Prayer. This book is the only book that God has given us so that we might know who He is, we might know who we are, and we might know what a relationship with him really looks like. And aren't you glad tonight that this book, this book can be handled by the most brilliant scholar in the universe and he can miss the point. Do you believe that? It can be handled by the simplest person in the world indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that person can get the point. That's the Bible. It's the richest, most wonderful, most powerful book in the world, and it's the foundation for everything that we believe. To say the Bible is inspired of God is to say simply what we've been saying all along. It is God's breathing out His Word into a book and giving it to us as the absolute authority for our lives. 
Let's talk about inerrancy. Let me just stop here and see if there are any questions or comments because I just went through a lot of stuff. Yes, ma'am. That was about three minutes ago. I've probably forgotten. Uh, it, <laughs> who, who God is, who we are, and how we can enter into a relationship with God. That's why it's Trinitarian. It's, it's from God the Father. It is empowered by the Holy Spirit pointing us to Jesus. That's why the intent of God in the whole Bible is for us to see Jesus everywhere. See Jesus everywhere. Because Jesus is the only way that we can relate to God. Inerrancy. Inerrancy means there are no errors in the Bible. That's all it means. Now, I have to say this at the beginning because it's important. When we speak of inerrancy, we're speaking of the original autographs or the original manuscripts. Now, that's important because we don't have them. What we've got is better. It's better than having the original manuscripts. What we've got is 5,000 plus manuscripts from all over the then known world collected in different places. Places all over the world. Jerusalem, Alexandria in Egypt, Rome, all over the world we have found these ancient manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts written by 40-plus authors with very little discrepancy. Now, that may not impress you, but let me try to impress you a little more. When... When, I, when Ann and I went to Augusta College in 19-whatever-it-was, a long time ago, we had, uh, we had a required series of courses we had to take the first year called the Humanities. And we had to take those courses, and we read, uh, we, we read some really old books. Now, I was an 18-year-old new believer who had no interest in those old books, and I look back now and wished I'd have had more interest. We read, for example, The Odyssey by Homer. Um, the, um, I didn't know that was an important book. I didn't know it had a long history. I knew none of that. I just knew it was written in poetic form and made absolutely no sense to me. So we read Homer's Odyssey. Do you know how many manuscripts of Homer's Odyssey are in existence from which the English version of Homer's Odyssey comes to existence? Twelve. Twelve. For people who examine and study ancient manuscripts, to have twelve manuscripts of an ancient book causes them to jump up and down and shout, praise Homer. That's marvelous. And those manuscripts have great discrepancies in them. They have to take those manuscripts and somehow bring together what is 
the modern reading of Homer's Odyssey. Uh, Herodotus is an ancient historian, one of the oldest of our historians. There are very few of the ancient manuscripts of Herodotus, and they don't agree. So our English translations of that great historian of the past come out of a handful of manuscripts. And among those manuscripts, there's significant disagreement over major kinds of issues. We've got over 5,000 manuscripts. Old Testament, New Testament, letters of Paul, four Gospels, written in Hebrew and Greek. Scholars have invested hours poring over those ancient manuscripts. And we have come to the place right now In the year 2020, we've been at this place for about 10 years, when Hebrew scholars agree, Hebrew scholars agree from every persuasion that the Hebrew Bible from which Hebrew scholars read now is as close to the autographs as we've ever been and is extremely accurate. And the same is true for the New Testament. For years and years and years, there were two major Greek New Testaments that competed with each other for the most accurate. Those two have now come together because they have done so much work and such thorough work on so many thousands of manuscripts that these people from these two groups believe that we have now the closest we could ever get to the original autographs of the New Testament as it was written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Luke, Paul, and so forth, Paul and James and so forth. So we have, we have the closest we could get, and this is important. We, there is no doctrine of Scripture, none, that is in any way affected by the nuances of difference in the manuscripts. None. That's important to know. When we say the Bible is not inerrant, We're saying that out of these thousands of manuscripts and these multiple authors from all over the then-known world, God has preserved his word so that there are only little bitty differences and not one of them makes any major difference in doctrine. Yes, sir. What's that? The corporation, the, the, the United... Uh, Well, we've all heard United Bible Societies are, what's the other name it goes by? I can't think right now. But it's the United Bible Societies that publishes Bibles and a group called Nestle Alant. They have come together and uh, they publish one uh, New Testament. That's massive because these these two groups were, were publishing New Testaments and marketing them as competitors. There's no need to compete when the Greek text that you're working with is the same. Now, let me just show you this. I could show you others, but turn to Romans 5, 1. Romans 5, 1. This is the kind of discrepancies that you see in the Bible. Now, you look at your translation 
of Romans 5.1. I'm going to read the ESV. I'm going to show you where the discrepancy is. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there could be some of you in here whose translation doesn't say, we have peace. Your translation says, let us have peace. Does anybody have that? Instead of having, we have peace, you have, let us have peace. Now, you tell me the difference. What's the difference between we have peace and let us have peace? There is a difference, but what is the difference? Right now. Okay, let us have peace means, yeah, let us pursue that peace that we have. Now, there are, there are translations. Does anybody have a King James in here? King James? Huh? All right, what does it say? Is that the new King James or the old? Okay. Uh, the, uh, anybody have a new American standard version? Okay, what does it say? Okay. I, I really wished I could tell you what translation has let us have peace, but there are those who let us have, pe- have let us have peace. Well, how did that discrepancy arise? Huh? Is the NIV? Does it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I want you to, I want you to go back in time with me just a minute. Just play this game with me. You're in the, uh, you're in the early second century and you are, um, you are, your job is to uh, copy the letters of Paul. That's your job. Now, how does that happen? You're in a monastery, and somebody is reading to you the letters of Paul. You're writing down what this person says. They're reading it. You're copying. The word we have, now listen to it. The word we have in Greek is echomen. Echomen. Did you hear that? Echomen. The word for let us have is echomen. Did you hear the difference? Don't try to figure it out. There is none. The difference is not in the sound of the word. The difference is in the letter. In the Greek alphabet, the word omicron is o. O, that's how you make the sound. O. The letter omega, you know how you make the sound omega? It looks like a little W. How do you make the sound? O. Same sound. Echomen with an omicron means we have. Echomen with an omega means let us have. So somebody's reading that. The scribe's not going to say, hey, is that echomen with an omega? Or with an Omicron. That's the kind of discrepancies you find. It makes no difference 
in the interpretation and the understanding of the text. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Y'all know what he's talking about, the, story, the account that I referred to last week at the end of the woman caught in adultery. And in most of the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John, that account is not in the Gospel of John. Oh, wait, let me back up. It's not in that location in the Gospel of John. Now, if you read, well, let's just do this. Go back. Go back to John, where we were last week. It's interesting. Go back to John. Jesus is in the temple uh, during the Festival of Tabernacles here. And so in John chapter 7, um, at, uh, okay. Verses 37 through 40, uh, verses 37 through 39. You remember we talked about the the water-pouring festival that happened every day in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles and the lighting of the candelabra that happened uh, every night. So verses 37 through 39 are about the pouring out of the water. And then verses, and then if you go over to chapter 8, verse 12... Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And so you go from the water ritual to the light ritual with no disruption in the, in the text, which is pretty much what would have happened in the temple during those days. So there, the question is about, what about this account of the woman caught in adultery? It showed up later in manuscripts, but not the earliest manuscripts. The earliest and the most reliable manuscripts don't have this account located here in the Gospel of John. But what scholars found was that in later manuscripts, when we get into the 3rd century, 4th century, 5th century, it shows up in those manuscripts. Does this account represent who Jesus is? Does it say anything that would cause us to think Jesus didn't do this? No. So it is the truth of God. The question is not whether it's in the Bible or not. The question is about where should it be located. That doesn't change anything about doctrine. Do you see that? It just changes questions about where, where it should be located because it was not found in the earliest manuscript. It's a good question. Other questions about that? So... You and I don't have the original manuscripts, and we don't have, for the most part, we don't have access to the languages of the Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament. What we have is translations. So let me just say a word about translations um, and I would welcome questions here because I think it's I think this is very critical. Um, the first thing that needs to be said is translations 
We can say about the original autographs that they're inerrant. You can't say that about any translation. The translations, we do not claim inerrancy as in they represent absolutely the original manuscripts. They are all derived from, uh, in our day, praise God, they're derived from uh, the most reliable Hebrew and Greek manuscripts we've ever had. What you will find on the Bible market today is two kinds of translations. I believe every believer needs one of each of these kinds of translations. The first kind of translation is called formal translation. What that means is this. The the desire of the translators is to make sure that every word in the original language that's in the text is brought into English. So when you're reading these translations, you can be sure that you are reading translators that took Hebrew words and brought them into English or Greek words and brought them into English. The, The intent is every word is brought from the original language into a roughly English equivalent. So you want that kind of translation for Bible study because you want to be sure that when you're studying the Bible, you are reading from a Bible that is capturing as much as possible the original Hebrew and the original Greek. That's a, you need that kind of Bible for Bible study. The English Standard Version. Al, why do you read from the English Standard Version? Because it is right now the best Bible on the market capturing the original Hebrew and the original Greek in the English language. That's why. I, I don't read from it because they're not Bibles that read better. There are Bibles that read better. But the ESV captures the original language. The New American Standard Bible, that is a wonderful Bible for the same thing, bringing the Hebrew into English and the Greek into English. It's a wonderful Bible. The New King James Version, not the original King James Version, but the New King James Version does a really good job of that. Those three are the best Bibles on the market whose intent up front is to translate the Hebrew and Greek into English equivalents that enable us to know better the meaning of words. So you need a Bible like that for your Bible study. Now, those of you who use those Bibles for Bible study know that often they are harder to read than some other Bibles because they're more wooden. They're intended to be because they're trying to capture the words of the original text. The second kind of translation is the dynamic translation. It's trying to capture the spirit of the text. Now, those are, these, these Bibles are great for Bible reading. I don't recommend them personally. I'm not going to tell you to go burn them or throw them away or sell them to your enemy, but they, they are not the best for Bible study. The NIV, for example, is a is a dynamic uh, translation. It's, it's a good translation, but it has no intent of capturing the meaning of the words. It's just trying to capture the spirit of the text. It makes for wonderful reading. It's easier to read. The, um, 
the, uh, what is the newest translation for Southern Baptists called the Christian Standard Bible or the CSB. Uh, it probably is the best Bible I've seen in the last 20 years of, transla- of people translating Bibles that tries to do both. It tries to capture as much as possible the words from the Hebrew and Greek while also communicating the spirit of the text. I love the CSB. I use it for my quiet time. Because in my quiet time, I'm not studying the Bible. In my quiet time, I'm not looking for a sermon. I want God's Holy Spirit to feed me in my quiet time, to nurture my own soul. So I'm looking for... um, And besides that, I do my quiet time very early in the morning, and my brain is at half speed. So I have to have a Bible that is, is not as stringent. And then a most popular, one of the most popular translations that's not a translation, it's a paraphrase, is the message. The message is a great paraphrase, but I would never use the message for Bible study or for teaching because it is far removed from any intent to capture the original words and the meaning of those words. Questions about translations. You need a translation like the ESV or the NASB, and you need something like the NIV or maybe even the message uh, just for reading through the Bible. Um, and, and the truth is that if you're reading it, seeking the Holy Spirit to speak to you, what's going to happen? The Holy Spirit is going to give you what you need uh, in the Word of God. Does this make sense about the different kinds of translations? We need... We need both. And aren't you glad that you and I live in a place where we can get both? We can get both kinds of translations to help us in our Bible study. Now, I'm going to stop here tonight. I didn't get to my goal, but that's all right. See if you have any more questions. Any other questions, comments? No. Okay. Yeah. I haven't read it. No. No. Huh? What? I'm glad you added that second part because I'd have been looking for something. No, I haven't. I, I've, I've, re- I've read the. Me- I read Bibles and compare text. What I do when I read a Bible that I'm thinking about using, I have certain places I go to and check the Hebrew against the English. I want to know if it's translated right. I check the Greek against the English. I want to make sure it's translated right. That's judgmental, but that's what I do. And I want to get for myself the best translations I can use. And if one comes out that's better than the ESV, I'll go to it. I mean, it's just just the way it is. Huh? Because it was one of the earliest Bibles available to be read by the people. You got to remember that prior to this time, there you you had the Geneva Bible uh, published in the 16th century. Uh, in the 17th century, you have in England the uh, King James Bible. When people ask me about the King James uh, Bible and why I don't use the King James Bible. Um, there, there are multiple reasons, but the basic reason is 
the uh, King James Bible was the most rapidly translated Bible in the history of Bible translations. It, used, it does not use the best manuscripts that were even available in the 17th century. And in places, it is not translated from the Greek and Hebrew at all. It's translated from the Latin Vulgate rather than from the Greek and Hebrew. And in certain places, uh, it, is, uh, it is a compendium of uh, going back to the Latin Vulgate and the Genevan Bible and kind of putting it all together as a composite. And, uh, and so all of that together just says to me, I'm not going to use a Bible that is, uh, that is so far less reliable in terms of its manuscript support than we have available to us today. Now, having said that, having said that, I want to say two things. The most beautiful translation of the Psalms is the King James Version. Beautiful. I mean, if you want to read the Psalms for their beauty, read them in the, don't, not New King James, but 1611, read them. The easiest version, believe it or not, to memorize is the King James Version. Huh? Yeah, if I were an Awana child, I would say, give me the King James, because <laughs> it's just easier. It's, it's more poetic. It flows better. Um, what was your question? Huh? But, well, it was popular then because it, the public could read it. When the King James Version was published, people lined up to get a copy. They were hungry and thirsty for the Word of God, and they had not been able to read the Word of God. And King James... King James was pestered by the Puritans, and the, he gave them nothing but the translation of the Bible. And at least, at least they got that, and we got that as a result of it. And it's still, the King James Version still sells in America of its 1611, it still sells more than any other translation because of its beauty. Now, uh, Jesus, one of the questions about Jesus and his Bible is, is whether he read primarily from the Hebrew Bible or the Greek translation of the Bible. But Jesus would have been like everybody else in his day, being fully human. He would have been multilingual. So he would have read from the Hebrew Bible. As a Jewish lad growing up in the synagogue, he would have been taught the Hebrew Bible. He would have memorized the first five books of the Bible. Does that blow your mind that long ago kids kids memorize the first five books of the Bible. Does that blow your mind? It does mine. I don't know how they did it. How can you do that and watch TV at the same time? And I mean, I don't know how you do all that. So, Huh? Anything else? Well, don't forget everything I've taught up to now. Kind of keep it with you until we get to January the 10th and We'll continue. Father, your word is not only, not only instructive and informative and transformative. Your word is beautiful. It is beautiful. And we love your word. We love to read your word and be refreshed by your word. We love to be nurtured by your word. We love to reflect on your word and think about what you are saying. And I pray, God that we would never get so comfortable with the Bible that we forget that we are reading what you gave us. As much as we pre appreciate John and Paul and, and James and 
the other writers of the Bible, Moses and the prophets, we know that behind every sentence and behind every letter, there is one author, and it's you. And your word given to your people is a clear, visual, verbal demonstration of your love for us. So let us love what you love. You love us, but you love your word, and we want to love it too. And we're thankful for it. In Jesus' name, amen.